often as we look out on this uh, world that we live in that is both beautiful and broken, we're confronted with uh, all manner of injustice. And there's something inside all of us that cries out and wants justice. Um, and seldom do we get it. Uh, and seldom do we get it as, as quickly as we wish we could get it. And uh, that's you know, a global statement in terms of all over the world, this is a, a, just a challenge. Uh, as we look out and we see all manner of you know, scandal and craziness. Sometimes when you're watching a TV series or a movie or a, you're reading a book and there's uh, you know, protagonist and antagonist and there's injustice being done, because you know, uh, you know, art is sort of holding up a mirror to life and at times life imitates art, but <clears throat> you, find your, you find your insides getting riled up, don't you? When the antagonist is getting away with it, you're just like, oh yeah, just in this next episode, I hope they get it. I, you know, you're, you're just waiting for the third act of the film or you're, you're mowing through the chapters in the book and you just want the justice. And um, you know, if, if, they, if the antagonist uh, beats the system and you're just so frustrated, they get so smug and you just want that justice. And then you know, maybe the person, the, the protagonist, you know, it's like, give me your badge and your gun and you're off this case. And it's like, perfect. Now I know they're definitely going to solve it because that's how all cases get solved. Get them off the case and then the judo justice comes. And even if it's judo justice, we're happy with the judo justice. We'll take it. Um, they, they, the, the thing, you know, gets thrown out of court on some technicality, but they're definitely guilty and we're so frustrated. And so the lawyer puts on some spandex and meets them in the alleyway at midnight and judo justice. We're fine with it. We want the, the, the justice uh, so deeply. And uh, interestingly, as moderns, uh, we're highly committed uh, to justice and we are, are the ideas of justice. It's often our own ideas of justice, but we, are, we sort of pride ourselves in the idea that we care deeply uh, about there being judgment and penalty for infractions and for things that are wrong. What's interesting is, as moderns, we also have a really hard time getting over a hurdle that God could be a God of justice and judgment. And that's difficult for us to swallow. We, we say we care about justice as moderns, but the idea that there could be a divine, perfect justice that supersedes our ideas of justice, that isn't faltered and frail with sort of tainted with our own humanity, but that there could be a divine standard, this is difficult for us. We don't like ideas of God of judgment, God of justice, we like ideas of, of God of mercy, and we're good with mercy, but we have difficulty with justice. And um, this is, of course, uh, a false dichotomy. There was a guy named Marcion back in the day who was a heretic that the church called heretic. And what he said was, I'm looking at the Old Testament. I'm seeing all this judgment. I'm seeing all this justice uh, of, that God is dispensing on sin, and I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm looking at the New Testament. I'm seeing Jesus, who is speaking truth to power, but he's predominantly living a life of, of uh, or he's, uh, you know, I'm predominantly seeing him um, e executing all this compassion. And so Marcion decided that, you know, we needed to sort of split the Old Testament from the New Testament and say, let's only talk about, you know, our ideas of this Jesus of compassion, because he seems to be saving us from this evil ogre in the Old Testament. The church tossed it out and said, this is heresy, of course, because Jesus is God. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Jesus is not inconsistent with God. In fact, when you're looking at the life of Jesus, he is perfectly interpreting God. So we have difficulty. It's a false dichotomy to say that if God is a God of justice, he somehow isn't a God of mercy. Because, in fact, um, his justice and his anger on sin comes from his love. In the same way... That if people you love are 
having their lives destroyed and corroded by some, you know, terrible thing, you get angry at that thing because of the person that you love. If there's a if somebody else comes into the life of one of your loved ones and that person is a negative influence and leads them down a path of self-destruction, you're going to get very angry at that person. And you're not angry because you're not loving. You're actually angry because you are. Our text for today is James chapter 5. And it's this sobering and encouraging passage uh, where our God is revealed as both a God of perfect justice and gracious compassion. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the first 11 verses. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages that you failed to pay the workers who have mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence and you've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter and you've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord is coming. The Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is God's word. We're going to do a deep dive into this text. We're going to walk through it. We're going to look at uh, three things that I've sort of broken this passage down into. There's many more than these three, but I hope these will serve you as some general categories to understand this passage. The three things we're going to look at is, first of all, the problem of unjust riches and the illusion of wealth. And the second thing is the call to patient endurance and lasting wealth. And finally, the God of compassion and patience empowers our endurance. So first, this problem of unjust riches and the illusion of the security that comes with wealth uh, starts out in verse 1, and he's calling out the rich. Why is James doing this? What has motivated um, him to take such a strong tone here? Up until this point in his book, he's he's already established uh, that Christians should live dependent on God. So this is a rebuke on those who fall prey to the easiest way of being independent from God. And the easiest way to live independent from God is by being rich. And before I continue, I need to say this, that God does not fit neatly into our human categories of capitalism and socialism. He does not fit that. You can't take our small uh, sort of isms, whether it's capitalism or socialism, and try and Use that as a hermeneutical lens to understand the God of the Bible. You can't do it. He can't be reduced and truncated that way. Now, for example, uh, those who have strong feelings about uh, capitalism and being in favor of capitalism, 
the God of the Bible will always offend you when you read his law through the Old Testament, or he is repeatedly built into the way that his people ought to live and flourish. Uh, he built into the law, uh, you know, assurances that there could not be systemic generational poverty. He would tap the rich on the shoulder every five years and say, forgive the debts of the poor. And that offends our sensibilities about capitalism. And every 50 years, he would tap the wealthy on the shoulder and say, give all the land back. That over the last 50 years, generations lost, whether through oppression or whether through their own foolishness, give the land back. And why did he do this? This is, of course, very offensive to us, our, our capitalist sensibilities. But God would do this as a way of showing uh, that we are the undeserving poor, that we are in need of grace that we don't deserve, and it's him. And so it was a mirror of our spiritual condition. God was preventing systemic poverty and wanting societal flourishing. And so there was the scandalous undeserved grace that totally offends our uh, sensibilities about capitalism. Now the socialists are going, yeah, but also God also offends our sensibilities about socialism, um, because, for example, Jesus had followers who were rich. Um, Jesus made use of, of uh, people who uh, were, were rich, and he had relationships with them, and he was not being complicit in the rich. Zacchaeus was rich. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. Uh, Barnabas was rich. And don't forget back in the book of Genesis, when God starts moving towards uh, his redemptive plan for salvation um, for humanity, God intentionally makes Abraham rich. So that is very offensive to our socialist uh, uh, sensibilities. The idea that, well, you know, the solution is that nobody should be rich. And you don't, also don't find that in Scripture. So what's, what is the problem here? What's going on? Well, the, the, the real problem is when we never grasp what God calls us to do when we're rich. Uh, that's what James is calling out here. You don't hoard it. You don't bathe in it like Scrooge McDuck. You don't endlessly multiply it. You don't endlessly, you know, pacify yourself with it. Endlessly entertain yourself with it. That's not what it's for. If, you're, if you've got riches and you're rich, you care for the poor with it. That's what you do with it. You honor God with it. You further the gospel with it. You bless the city with it. You, you make sure that all those around you are flourishing with it. That's what you do with it. And so notice that the problem is expressly revealed here. If you look at verse four, it says, the wages of the laborers you kept back by fraud. So the problem here is that these riches are unjust. It's not honest working and a person became wealthy. This is unjust gain. If you are deferring payment beyond the agreed upon terms, that's defrauding a person, right? They got bills to pay. They got mouths to feed. There ain't nothing in this world for free. You can't just defraud payment. All throughout the Old Testament, caring for the poor is not called charity. Caring for the poor is called justice. That's how God always refers uh, to it. And so James gets Old Testament in his language. And so look at the language. You'll notice it. He's saying, weep and wail. Your destiny is misery. You hoard food. When others have no food, it's going to rot. You, you know, people around you are naked and you put an extension on your walk-in closet. So it's a mile long. Your garments are going to be moth-eaten. Right? You uh, people are without shelter and they have no livelihoods and you're sitting on your gold like Smaug, 
Your gold and silver is going to be corroded. And then with just a touch of horror, the kind of language that would inspire Dante, you know, when he would later write as Inferno, James says, the rust will devour your flesh like fire. Yikes. Why is James channeling the prophets? Why is he getting so uh, Old Testament in his language? Well, he's doing it on purpose. He's using all of these familiar Jewish phrases. Uh, one phrase in particular, <clears throat> all your riches are going to be a witness against you in the last days. He's holding these words out as both a threat to the godless oppressive rich and as a consolation for those who are being oppressed by the rich. If you look at verse 4, he says all this has kind of risen to the attention of God Almighty. The English says Almighty. In the Greek, it is uh, Sabaoth, which is like the Greek translation of the way God was always talked about in the Old Testament, being the God of angel armies. I mean, this is serious language. The the Lord of hosts, all through the, the, the Old Testament says the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. So James is, James is sort of reaching all the way back to the Exodus where you've got the people of God being crushed in slavery. The Egyptians are exploiting them. So afraid of the slaves rising up and multiplying, the oppressors are throwing the babies of the oppressed in the water. So the God of angel armies comes and he judges the oppressors and he throws the oppressors in the water. That's the exodus. And so James is going back and recalling this God of justice and judgment who's not just sitting back idly by and like some sort of cosmic grandpa who's like, oh, we're good with everything. I just love everybody and everything. In the end, it's all fine. And if you live the life of, of, uh, uh, of great suffering and impoverishment, well, in the end, everybody's going to be okay. That's not the text. It's not what it gives us. That God is certainly not worshiping that sort of construct of God uh, who would just wink at injustice. So James is channeling all the prophets because this is both a powerful encouragement and it's a severe warning. It incur he's encouraging Christians who are suffering at the hands of the rich who are doing their business in unjust and greedy predatory ways. But it's also a severe warning for Christians to not conduct their own business in unjust and greedy and predatory ways and then look at their lavish, opulent life and call that the blessing of God. You see, that's the whole book of Amos. If you read the book of Amos, here's the book of Amos in a sentence. The oppressed become the oppressors. And James is seeing in his church, okay, if you zoom back out to chapter 2, uh, for, those of you, for those of you joining us now and you haven't been joining us through the whole book uh, study, of James's letter. Back in chapter two, you remember, James goes, hey, a poor person walks in the church and you're like, sit on the floor. A rich person walks in, you're like, have the best seat. And so James is seeing the ideology of the culture, you know, sort of rising up like a sewer that backed up and it's leaking under the door of the church. And James is like, that's going to be a problem. So what James is doing here is he's like, listen, Christian, you ought to get your business ethics from this warning to the ungodly. And what he's saying is, if you pay people as little as possible, and then you delay their payment as long as possible, and then you commodify people whenever possible so that your profit margins are as large as possible, your lavish life is not a testament to the, to the blessing of God. It's a stack of evidence that is attracting the judgment of God. And he doesn't want the church in that space. And so... These are both sobering words and, liber and liberating words. You know, historically and globally speaking, 
the oppressed get very little satisfaction in seeing justice. But this text is a consolation because it says, God sees. And because God sees, two things are true. The first thing is very satisfying to hear, and the second thing I'm going to say is very difficult to hear. Here's the first thing. Because God sees, in the end, everyone who committed injustice will answer for injustice. If that weren't true, I don't think God is worth worshiping. But he is worth worshiping because he doesn't turn a blind eye to injustice. In the end, nobody's getting away with anything. I know your newsfeed is full of things that want to make your anxiety, you know, bubble up inside your throat like, you know, frustrating. But nobody's getting away with anything. That's satisfying to know. But here's the thing that's very difficult to know. God is more patient than we are. And he's more compassionate than we are. And he is slower to anger than we are. And he's slower to judgment than we are. And what he's doing right now is he is saving people that you and I would never save. I can't give you an answer for why injustice and suffering is continuing. I can't give you an answer in a specific way, but I can give you an answer. Every theologian can give you an answer in a broad way. And the broad answer is why, why has God not just you know, wrapped it up and done away with the evil in the world? The answer is... He is saving people by his grace like you and I, people that don't deserve it. You and I don't deserve it. You and I are here on Sunday morning worshiping Jesus, praying prayers of confession, thankful for God's forgiveness, and we do not deserve it. And God is continually in patience and scandalous levels of divine compassion. Through all of this injustice and evil, he is saving people that don't, that don't deserve it. Which leads us to the second thing. How we respond to all of this, and the answer is patience. The call to patient endurance and true lasting wealth. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Therefore be patient. Right? If those who are oppressing and creating hardship are, are living independent from God, if they are getting judgment, and that is their destiny, then therefore the strength to endure hardship is found in patiently remembering our destiny. And so do you see the tone here? I want you to notice the tone of this, you know, sort of Old Testament channeling uh, sort of rebuke against injustice and then the tone for the church. What, what is James calling the church to do? He, notice the tone. He's not calling us to this anxious, angry revolt He's calling us to patience. Should we as the church speak truth to power? Yes. And we should do it patiently with civility. Right? If you're having a conversation with family or friends or at work and somebody is painting you know, the poor or the refugee or somebody of another ethnicity in some sort of one-dimensional, limited, unhelpful, ignorant way, then we should speak to it patiently with civility. If we're at work and we notice that there's a system in place and the system is unethical, or it's unjust, or it's discriminatory, and it's making sure that the people at the bottom can't get ahead and they barely make it. If we notice that there are things in place where we work that are really preventing people from flourishing so that the rich get richer and the poor stay poor, then we should speak to it patiently and with civility. And so this is the tone that, that James is calling us to, not, not to just idly do nothing and sit back and say, well, the Lord will take care of it. Be active ministers, but I want you to notice how important this, 
this tone is here because when the time comes, and sadly it usually does, that the people in power have no interest in redistributing their power and they silence you or they ignore you or they demonize you because they've decided that the way the world is set up suits them just fine. How will you react, church? Will you lead a life of anxiety and anger over injustice? Or will you, with endurance, be strengthened by God's peace as you patiently and faithfully seek justice? Because there's a huge temptation here. A huge temptation for the church, and James knows it, that's why this is a pastoral strike, and he says, hey, yo, patience. The huge temptation is to look at people in power and go, you're messing up with the power. Give us the power and we will properly handle power. That's the temptation. Here's the thing with power. Wielding power is like a football in the hands of the New York Giants. That thing is getting fumbled. It's just a matter of time. It's going to be on the ground. Nobody, none of us can properly wield and handle, you know, total omnipotent power. And therefore, we must be patient. Verse 7 goes on to say, you know, look at the farmer. There's this illustration of the farmer. So church, let's sit in this. And how, how are we going to react in, you know, the craziness of the unending stream of things in our news feeds? You look at verse 7 and he says, let's look at the, uh, the illustration of this farmer. And we're called to see that united to Christ, indwelled by the spirit of Christ, uh, we can really act in similar ways. Because you don't plant seed and eat corn in the same day. This is patience, right? Patience takes courage. It's trust. It's waiting on God. Farmers work while they wait. And so, united to Christ, as those who are aware of his, the restoration that is coming with the return of Christ, we work while we wait. Farmers depend on things that are out of their control, beyond their power, with their eye on the skies. And we depend on a God. When circumstances are out of our control, when things are beyond our power, we keep our eyes on the skies. That's the significance of the early and latter rains that are mentioned there. The farmer is dependent on an early rain so he can plant the seed and later rain so he can reap the harvest and he has control over neither. And that's the story of our lives. Dependent upon things of which we have no control over and patiently trusting God as we diligently do our work. Uh, when you look at verse 9, it says, don't grumble against one another, which is a really great pastoral encouragement because in times of hardship, we as a church community can become impatient and less than loving uh, with each other. Right? We live in a culture of complaint, Right? Uh, absolute culture of complaint. And, and so what James wants to do is he wants to build resilience in us. Um, I remember when I was coaching football when my boys were younger, I'd coach football in the city, the Waterloo Warhawks. And when you're coaching these little guys and it gets cold and it's raining and there's a lot of crying, you know, uh, if Tom Hanks ever did a football movie, the famous line would be, there's no crying in football because there's a lot of crying in football. And uh, I remember you're trying to build resilience in these kids for these dire circumstances like rain and snow and cold weather and mud. And 
but the funny thing about football is all of the languages, you're trying to get them to dig deep down inside and release their inner hero and release their inner champion. And of course, the kids are like, I dug deep down there and I, there's no hero down there. And there's just a lot of crying. And it's very, very difficult to sort of do that. And so sometimes you've got coaches who, uh, and I've done this too, where you get to your wits end and you're just kind of like, well, somebody call the ambulance. Well, what's James doing here? He's not trying to say, hey, church, you know, buck up and be patient to somebody call the ambulance. He realizes that when times are tough, uh, we being frail, uh, uh, prone to kind of curve inward and be selfish, he's saying, don't grumble with each other. Church, it's been eight months on Zoom. Uh, let's continue to, <laughs> to uh, uh, fight against the temptation to just sort of curve inward and really not care about the other hundred people that are that are joining this live stream every, every every Sunday morning. It's easy to do that. But it's like, no, we live in this culture of complaint. We live in the, and it, where people just are kind of get a bit of a, a dopamine fix and being outraged at something. And so we need to sort of be diligent in uh, reaching out, sending the text, making the phone call. The, the weather is getting gross, so we can't meet out on patios like we used to be able to. So we're going to have to, you know, be creative in the coming months to, to continue to, care and love for each other you know and on that note i just want to commend you because uh, as i'm encouraging you to do it you have been doing it i see it i hear about it all the time it blesses susan and i uh peter brianna rick uh, and as we are praying for the church constantly as a we are encouraged uh, by you and uh, that you haven't just become grumblers and complainers we all we all hate zoom we know that i hate it uh, you hate having to sit and do it, you do it. I hate having to sit and do it. But yet here we are in this t- hardship, going through it all together, suffering together. In verse nine, uh, James says, um, he says, you know, Jesus is coming as a judge that is standing at the door. And again, that's going to strike your ear in two ways. That's either very sobering or very liberating. Jesus says the judge, right? If you have no need of God because you've got your riches, well, then that ought to be sobering because you're made of dirt. And life is short, and Jesus is the judge, and he's judging you against his perfectly loving life. So that should be sobering. But if by grace you trust in Jesus, and you consider him your riches, and that's not sobering, it's liberating. It's encouraging, because we're made of dirt, and our life is short, and Jesus is the judge. But the good news is, of course, trusting in him, we get his perfect track record. We're being judged by the standard of Jesus' perfectly loving life. But the good news for all those who trust in him is that we are united to the one who lived the perfectly loving life. We have, given, we have been justified and have had imputed to us the divine perfect track record of the one who lived the perfectly loving life. Which leads to the final thing that we'll close with this morning. The God of compassion and patience who empowers our endurance. You look at verse 10 and James says, listen, look at the prophets who uh, persevered and you look at Job, you've heard of the perseverance of Job. And really what he's doing is he's, he's pointing us to God's faithfulness during these hard times. Uh, you know, Job refused to curse God despite the fact that he suffered severely and mysteriously. Uh, Job was a good man and yet he suffered. And in the end of the book of Job, Job never gets an answer for why he suffered. We do as the readers, we know why he suffered. But he never knew why he suffered. And what's interesting about this is that 
you know, the devil set out to utterly destroy Job. God restricted everything that happened to Job. And there is a demonic thesis in Job. The demonic thesis is this. The enemy, the devil, the Satan in the Hebrew, says this. Nobody actually loves God. They only love the stuff they think they can get from God. And so if I take away all the stuff from Job that he's thankful for because he says he got it from God, Job will curse God. And the reason Job will curse God is the reason everybody will curse God. And that reason is nobody actually loves God for God. That's the demonic thesis. If God takes your stuff away, you'll stop going to church next week. That's the devil's thesis. You don't actually love God. Nobody loves God. So what does God do? Well, instead of Job cursing God and aligning with the forces of darkness and hell, God actually uses everything the devil does like a divine object lesson. And he sends a message to the forces of the darkness of hell. And God's message is this. This was God's message for Job. This is God's message for you. This was God's uh, message in the book of Job during times of hardship. This is what's going to encourage you in times of hardship. And here it is. God's message to the devil, quite frankly, was this. I can do whatever I want. I can give saving grace to whoever I want. I will keep them by that saving grace. And you actually can't do anything about it. And that is God's message throughout the book of Job. God rubs the devil's nose in his failure like a disobedient dog. And so, which is why in verse 11, as we close today, oh, the, I said closing, that's my second close. Which is why in verse 11, it says, God's disposition towards Job and his suffering is the same as his disposition towards us and our suffering, which is God is full of compassion and mercy. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Our God is not distant. He's not off in the cosmos, angry at injustice. Our God came in Jesus Christ. He lived a life of generous justice. He died at the hands of injustice. His resurrection and ascension means that his return is coming to end all injustice. Our God did not come in Jesus Christ to crush us with his power. He came and he spoke truth to power. And then he went to the cross and he laid down his power. And he didn't come to bring God's judgment on us. He came and he bore God's judgment for us. And so the action that we now take as ministers of the gospel, ministers of justice and compassion, all of our action is not fueled by worry and anxiety about the future. We can speak and act with patience and endurance that we get from the eternal certainty that we have about our future. Because in the end, nobody's getting away with anything because our God is just. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved because our God is compassionate. Let's pray.